Um, this morning we're going to do something slightly different to normal, which is something that we did last Sunday. Um, we are calling this the, the Sunday Grill. The plan is that I will speak for 15 minutes with a countdown clock, and then after 15 minutes we'll put some music on, um, and then you'll have a chance to uh, write some questions. I think some pens and some paper are about to make their way uh, around you all while we do that. So there'll be 10 minutes, we'll put some music on, you can get to write some questions, and then we'll have another 10 minutes timed where I will endeavor to answer uh, some of those questions as well as I can. Um, I've got a wonderful uh, full screen stopwatch here, which I'm going to do endeavor to look at, but so that you guys all know where I am with all of that, uh, Josh at the back is going to flash the lights when I've got two minutes to go. Josh, can you give me an example of what that looked like? And then, when we hit 15 minutes, the lights will go like this. Um, so, that's the plan. Um, we are, yeah, as we said, the second uh, part of this series, Violence and Peace in the New Testament, uh, having done Violence and Peace in the Old Testament. This isn't part of my 15 minutes. This is, this is still just setting the scene just in case. Um, and the other thing that I meant to say as part of the housekeeping is that Steve is at the front and he's scribbling things down on some paper and indeed on an iPad. Now, this isn't because he's bored and he's doing some work. I mean, he might be bored, I don't know, but he's not just bored and doing some work. Um, as lots of you will know, I am currently in the process of training to become a Baptist minister. And the next part of that process is that Steve, as the senior minister here, has to make some notes on a talk that I give and report back to the London Baptist Association on how good or how bad it was. So if I try and make a joke and you all laugh really loudly and then at the end maybe just go up to Steve and say, that was just the best sermon that I have heard in so long. Um, last thing I need to do as a housekeeping is to turn this back around so that instead of, so the people in the crash upstairs can actually see me, uh, I'll try not to wander around too much rather than seeing an empty stage because we had it pointing there at the band. Um, so are we ready? I've got quite a lot to say in 15 minutes, and the problem with this is being Welsh, we tend to talk really quickly, and if I was doing this in Wales, I reckon I could probably talk at twice the speed, which means I could probably get through about 30 minutes in my old church in South Wales, uh, compared to the 15 minutes I've got now. So anyway, now we are ready, all right? Are we three, two, one... 15 minutes, let's go. So Steve spoke last week about violence in peace in the Old Testament. And I think on the surface of it, most people would argue that he got the difficult bit, right? So the Old Testament, you know, it's all full of God-ordained genocide and wars and Noah's Ark when everyone gets wiped out and all this kind of terrible stuff. And then I've got the New Testament, which is meant to be the easy bit. Because we can all get on board with the New Testament, can't we? Here's some verses from the first book of the New Testament. One of the Pharisees, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Ah, that's a bit more like it, isn't it? No more war, no more horrible things. It's all about love. Much easier than preaching about war. But here's the thing. I think Steve got the easy bit. I think we find the Old Testament a bit easy to get on board with, a bit easier to follow than the New Testament, actually. 
Because if you've been around this church for a long time, you'll know that we've talked about this kind of thing on numerous occasions, haven't we? Steve spoke really well about it last week, but we've had this conversation a lot of times. Yeah, there are some you know, terrible stories in the Old Testament, but because they are terrible stories, we've spent a bit of time on them, haven't we? We've worked hard at them. So we've talked about Noah's Ark on a number of occasions here. We've talked about loads of those stories from the Old Testament. We, we get really in deep with them. We actually try and kind of struggle with them and work it out. And so what we've said, we discussed the fact that you know, these people were from the Middle Bronze Age. They didn't understand science to the degree that we understand it. They were primitive in their thinking. They were just trying to understand this God that we now know actually probably didn't tell them to kill every man, woman, and child in the whole of Midian, as it says in Numbers 31. And we say it's okay because we've moved on from that primitive way of thinking. So because it's hard, because the Old Testament's hard, we've wrestled with it, haven't we? And that's how I think lots of us probably now could have reasoned answers to questions about such things as Noah's Ark. But because we think the New Testament is easy, I think it's probably fair to say that we haven't engaged with it quite as well as we have the Old Testament. I think the New Testament is a bit more difficult to follow, actually, than the Old Testament. Why do I say that? Well, here are some of the verses that Pauline read for us from Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You've heard it said, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of heaven be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect when we read the old testament we can be tempted to think that all we need to do to match up to it to match up to what's called of us is not commit genocide but the new testament we're called to an incredibly high standard love your enemies Pray for those who persecute you. Go the extra mile. Turn the other cheek. Do not even be angry with a brother or sister. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So then how do we square the example that we read in the New Testament with the violence that we see in the world today? Uh, As I said earlier, I'm training to become a Baptist minister, and so I've had to do quite a lot of study on Baptist history. Uh, And one of the things that I've learned is how nonviolence used to be a really key part of nonconformity, of nonconformist religion. The Anabaptists, who were predecessors of the Baptists in many ways, they were pacifists. It was a central part of that denomination, of their understanding of God. Anabaptists refused to join the army. When the First World War started, many Christians were conscientious objectors, refused to fight in the war, and they took a lot of flack for this. They were more conscientious objectors in the Second World War, and actually they got a bit less grief for it this time, because the first time round, it was meant to be the war that ended all wars. And 20 years later, here they were again, going through the same thing again. They'd seen the futility of it. But in both of those wars, there were a significant number of Christians who did join the armed forces, including both of my grandparents, both of my grandfathers. My dad's dad was in the RAF and would regale you at length with stories of his time in the war. If I had a pound for every time he told me the story of the days when he had to walk through the North African 120 degree heat, 
we wouldn't need to stand up here and ask you to increase your standing orders to sort out the church's budget deficit. So we had Christians in both camps, some conscientious objectors and some who joined the armed forces into battle. And both of them were justifying their position through different readings of these same verses. There's a similar story told about Billy Graham. Apparently in 1991, on the day that the first Gulf War started, Billy Graham went into the White House to pray with the President George Bush. But outside, on the same evening, was this man, Bishop Edmund Browning, and a load of other Christians. He was the bishop in charge of the Episcopal Church, which was President Bush's own denomination. He was a regular churchgoer. And Browning was outside the fence, leading a candlelit vigil, praying for peace rather than praying for success in war. So who was right? Billy Graham or Edmund Browning? Who correctly heard God's will? Fast forward a couple of decades and Bush's son, George W. Bush, was the president of the USA. And he and the UK prime minister of the time, Tony Blair, both professing Christians, both claimed that God was involved in their decision to take the USA and the UK to a second war in Iraq. Now, it's almost impossible to count the number of Iraqi people killed by American and British armies in this war, but all sources agree that it's at least in the hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands of people killed by armies sent into battle by governments led by two men who claim that their moral compass is guided by a man who said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Do not even be angry towards a brother or sister. So how do we get from those words of peace in the New Testament to the words of violence from George Bush Jr., Sr., or Tony Blair? It's a difficult question, isn't it? I don't think there's an easy answer. It would be easy for me to stand here and say that we shouldn't have gone to war, that the the words of Jesus say that we should never go to war. It's a simple answer. Move on. But it's such an important topic. I think we owe it a bit more courtesy than that. About a decade ago, I sat in this very room and listened to Tony Benn speak on this subject. About 10 years before that, Tony Benn had given a famous speech in Parliament arguing against Britain going to war in Iraq, where he talked about being a teenager during the Blitz in World War II. It was a fantastic speech. I'd recommend you go back and watch it. It was terrifying, Tony Benn said in Parliament. And today, aren't Iraqis terrified? Don't Iraqi women weep when their children die? So he was here in this room talking about nonviolence. And at the Q&A bit at the end, somebody asked him a question. The guy who stood up and asked the question clearly felt he was on safe ground asking Tony Benn this question. And uh, he said, are you a pacifist? Tony Benn stood up and he said, "Um, are you married? The guy said, yeah. He said, have you got any kids? And he said, yeah, too. He said, well, let me ask you a question. He said, imagine this hypothetical situation. You walk into your house one day, you've come in from work, and there's a robber standing there. He's been stealing your stuff. And he's standing there, and he's got a gun, and he's pointing it at your wife and your two kids. He hasn't seen you come in, and he's got his back to you. And on the kitchen table, there's another gun. You could easily pick up that gun. You could shoot the robber. You've got a clear shot, and you could save your wife and your kids. What would you do? Would you take the shot? 
What would you do? Would you take the shot? That question, or some variation on it, is often used to find out people's opinions on what's known as just war theory. This is Augustine, and he came up with the first Christian perspective on this in the 4th century. Just war is basically the theory that despite the nonviolence preached by Jesus, there are wars which are justifiable. There are criteria set out, and if a war meets this criteria, it can be determined to be just, and therefore acceptable for Christians to engage in it. The reasoning surrounds things like you don't go to war simply to recapture land or to punish people for doing wrong. Innocent life must be in immediate danger and any intervention must be to protect life. And any intervention is only just when all other avenues of creating peace have been explored and found wanting. Augustine was actually asked about the the verses in Matthew 5 that we read earlier. And his argument was that these words forbid self-defense but they don't forbid fighting in defense of an innocent third party. Other people have looked at these words from Matthew 18. If anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hang around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Christians who agree with the just war theory say that this verse justifies acting on behalf of those who can't act for themselves. So where does this leave us? Well, I wonder if the answer might be in the most famous act of violence seen in the New Testament, in the crucifixion of Jesus. You will know, Steve, more than most of us, that much has been said about what the death of Jesus on the cross means to us. And one of the theories put forward is that Jesus dies as the exemplar, the best example of how to live. Jesus lived nonviolently, and he died nonviolently. An author called Jonathan Martin puts it this way. Jesus told Peter to put away his sword, and then he willingly laid down his life for the very people that were killing him, crying out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The cross is the once and for all definitive statement that God is nonviolent. Where does this leave us? I think it leaves us needing to get to work. Because regardless of what you believe about whether Christians are always called to nonviolence, I think everyone would agree that violence should be no more than a last resort. And as a result, I think there's something for all of us to do. We need to work at nonviolence. We need to work at peacemaking. Most of you will know that um, a couple of weeks ago, on the Friday before Remembrance Day, we ran a project called Inspire. Um, We held services in cathedrals around the country commemorating the centenary of the end of the First World War. Um, The event I went to was, was fantastic, but... The guy who was leading the service, he wasn't one of our staff, I'll say that now, but um, he started by praying, and he, he said, Lord God, I pray this morning that you would give us the gift of peace. And I was quite frustrated by that, because one of the major points of this service was that we were talking about working to build peace how peacemaking is an active thing that we need to get 
involved with. We need to build peace, not expect it to come to us. And I think that's the task that we need to engage with this morning. Peace is less a gift that is given to us as something we get our hands dirty, working hard to try and drag into this kingdom. How do you avoid having to pick up a gun to shoot the guy who's trying to rob your house? Well, maybe you work hard every day to try and create a community in which everyone has enough money to live without resorting to robbing somebody's house. A community in which everyone has enough self-worth and enough shalom, wholeness, that they choose to become the best version of themselves and take a different path to that. How do we avoid going to war with other countries? We work every day to build a country which cares for everyone, all humanity, around the globe of all nations and doesn't just try to protect its own based on arbitrary national borders. An author called Tony Jones said, it's Jesus' example of humility and sacrificial love to the point of death that catalyzes our own love and activates forgiveness. Jesus' death doesn't just point the way to selfless moral living. It actually draws us into a life of love and forgiveness that is the ultimate, overwhelming response to the crucifixion. Jesus' death activates a supernatural love that transcends any earthly love. As we leave here this morning, I wonder if we could use the example of the most violent part of the New Testament to leave us fighting for nothing more than peace. Um, thank you so we're going to put some music on now we'll have 10 minutes to um, yeah, for you to write your thoughts down discuss it with anybody around you if you'd like when you've written your question stick your hand up in the air and we've got some willing volunteers Flick um, and Rebecca and Danielle I think are going to wander around and collect those we'll then bring them to the front we'll pick the easiest no I don't mean that we'll pick some of the good questions and then we'll have 10 minutes to answer them um, okay, we've had quite a lot, which is great. Um, uh, wonderful. Right, I'm going to try and do as many as I can. We've only got, we're going to try and do 10 minutes. So there's loads coming. The key thing to note here is that this evening, um, we have another service at 6.30. And um, I will be doing the same 15 minutes uh, there. And then after the 15 minutes... Um, uh, he's up there. We will do another Q&A thing. There's a bit more chance for a longer question and answer session in the evening because uh, it is, it's through in the coffee shop for anybody who haven't been. It's in Hub Coffee House and it is a bit more of a, uh, a kind of relaxed, informal kind of conversational attitude. I'm getting more questions. That's a good one, is it? Wonderful. Okay, thank you. Oh, brilliant. Okay, that's great. Um, so there's, yeah, there's hundreds of them. So, yeah, so we'll try and get through as many as we can in the next 10 minutes. Um, but, yeah, like I said, come back in the evening. You'll only have to hear the 15 minutes again, and after that you might get a chance to get your questions answered. The, um, the first one is, how can we be perfect when we are human? Yeah, the, uh, the last line of that, um, the reading that we had was, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, First interesting thing to say about that is that the, a similar, the same story is recounted in Luke's gospel. At the end there it says, be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. And, and um, it's interesting that, that Matthew says perfect. You know, it's a much stronger word, isn't it? Be merciful. So he gets to the end of this thing and he says, be perfect. 
not be merciful. It's quite easy to be merciful. And, um, and the argument goes that, um, yeah, we are human, we can't be perfect, but we can all aspire to be perfect. And that's the, that's the question here. So what Jesus is saying in this context, um, until Jesus comes, it's all about rules and regulations. You know, a, a being a, a, good, a good Jew is about following the ethical code that's set down for you from the Old Testament. And as long as you keep the rules, that's the important thing. What Jesus is coming to say is the rules, the laws, we're fulfilling them. We're going over that. We're going beyond that. Be perfect. He's calling people to a higher standard. This is actually not just about following these rules and then it'll be okay. What I'm calling you to here is your whole life. So I think that's what he's trying to get at. That's the first one. So um, why do you think that after three years of life with Jesus, Peter still carried a sword? I think because he was human, unfortunately. I think that's the problem, isn't it? You know, I always think that, you know, you see, yeah, you see the disciples doing stupid things all the time. And I think that, you know, I've not only had 39 years of practice in reading the words of Jesus. I've been coming here every week and I still do stupid things. So I think that, yeah, particularly in that first century context, you know, there's lots of people nodding who work with me. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, not even going to look at my wife. So, um, yeah, I think that there is there's something in that. But I think first century culture, you know, they were in they were in a, a place where there was a Roman Empire there and you know and violence was everywhere, you know, and so that's that's what they were used to. They were also expecting a Messiah to come who would lead them into battle with the Romans. So that's their entire culture. That's where they're coming from. That's why I think Peter still carries a sword. Oh we got Okay, so the question is whether Peter was carrying the sword or whether the soldier was carrying the sword and then Peter took it from the sword. Yeah, I think I would imagine that what the question is trying, what the, whoever wrote the question, what they're trying to get at is why did Peter try and cut the soldier's ear off rather than who was carrying the sword, I guess. So yeah, um, I think that the next question is please give some practical ideas how to create the environment that you spoke of where the robber doesn't exist. Yeah, maybe um, create a community hub that runs a food bank and a debt advice center and a church and a primary school and a secondary school, I guess. That is the answer, I guess, that what we are trying to do here all day, every day, is to create that situation in which the, uh, the, uh, the, the situation with the robber doesn't exist. Um, you talk about working at peacemaking. How does this contrast with Jesus saying, my peace I give you? I wonder if there's something about internal and external there. So that when Jesus says, my peace I give you, he's talking about the fact that we have the Holy Spirit, we believe is inside us, and therefore we can call on Jesus. We can call on the Holy Spirit to, to, to give us that peace that transcends understanding. That's an internal thing. But then beyond that, we need to go out and work at peace in the areas in which people aren't, don't have that internal peace. So if there are difficult situations around us, we need to get out there, get our hands dirty and work at that. Um, does being peaceful, this is a good one, does being peaceful mean allowing people to take advantage of us and not sticking up for ourselves? I guess the question there is, what does sticking up for ourselves mean? I wrote a nice quote actually here. Um, Gandhi said, the power at the disposal of a non-violent person is always greater than he would have if he were violent. There is no such thing as defeat in non-violence. And somebody else said, for the oppressed, non-violence is the only available option. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a load of... <laughs> the difficulty with this is you're trying to put in about 2,000 years of Christian theory around war into 
15 minutes and then into a two-minute question, but you, know, you look at the example of people who have been peaceful. So Martin Luther King, um, you know, the whole civil rights movement was based on non-violence. And yeah, and, and in the short term, you could argue that that was allowing people to take advantage of them by not sticking up for themselves and fighting back. But the idea there, or part of the idea there, again, we haven't got time to go into the detail, but part of Martin Luther King's theory behind that was eventually the white people in the U.S. would be shamed into giving black people equal rights so that they would come at them, they would be aggressive and all this kind of stuff over and over again. But the number of times that the, yeah, the civil rights movement would take that and they'd just take it and they'd not fight back, eventually they would give in. Um, Nathan, what would you do in the robber gun kitchen wife situation? <laughs> that's it, isn't it? That's the big question. And that's why I... Um, that's why I, I, I said I don't know. That's, that's why I, yeah, I've, I've given the 15 minutes that I gave and not the 15 minutes, which is this is why Christians should all be called towards nonviolence. Uh, honest answer is I've absolutely no idea. It's very rare that, um, I, I think it's quite weird that anybody probably stands up at the front and says they have no idea. Like I said, I think the, the thing is you've got to go upstream. I guess that's my answer to that is what I gave when I was doing the talk. I don't know what I'd do. No idea. Um, how do we continue to strive and work for peace when injustice, rude word in brackets, seem to prevail? Um, yeah, I guess that's similar to the civil rights movement. Um, you know, there's a load of people who over the years have continued to work for peace when injustice seems to prevail. Look at apartheid in South Africa and the n amount of time that Nelson Mandela spent in prison. You know, I think the... There's that great Martin Luther King quote again that says the, uh, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. And I guess you need to try and keep that inside that you. You need to keep that at the heart of all you're doing and just continue to strive to work for peace. I think there's something about seeing the small victories as well. So, you know, in a, a local level here, we have more people coming to our debt advice center than we can cope with. We've seen a 150% increase in the amount of people using our food bank over the last six months compared to the previous year. You know, the, the stories that we could tell you of the individuals who come through our doors every day would make your heart break. Honestly, it really would. Um, how do I continue to strive for peace when injustice like that seems to prevail? You take the small wins. So, you know, we've had people in the last week, somebody has had their no recourse to public funds lifted, which means she can now claim benefits, which means she can now afford to live. She can now afford a flat and she can now afford to feed her kid. You've got to carry on looking for those things. Um, oh, wow, we've flown through these, actually. That's good. Um, and then we've got one more. Um, it's right away to us. Oh, this is quite a long one. It's right to work towards utopia where peace rules, but that's heaven. Meanwhile, selfish, materialistic human nature will surely always result in the robber kitchen situation, or worse, uh, Hitler, where violent intervention is the only way to protect the vulnerable. Um, yeah, and actually, the... Then the other question, which kind of links into it really, is should Christians be in or in support of the armed forces? Yeah, I read quite a lot actually about um, World War II in, um, in preparing for this because this is often used as an example of the most just of wars. You know, you look at what Hitler was doing um, and then people say that, well, did that tick all the boxes? And it, actually, if you look at it technically, it doesn't go anywhere near ticking all the boxes. But um, 
you know, clearly innocent life was in danger and people would argue there was no more reasoning with Hitler. The, the caveat again is if we'd gone upstream, we could have done something about that. You know, the, the, um, the settlement that was created at the end of World War I was, was a settlement that was created by the winning powers to punish the losing power. And so we, we put into place these economic conditions where Germany would be punished and would therefore struggle. And had we gone at that with more of a justice-driven agenda, then Germany wouldn't necessarily have been in the position with hyperinflation that then created the conditions in which Nazi Germany could arrive and Hitler could rise. So there's something for us in that, that, you know, that as the winning powers, we we created a lot of those conditions that allowed World War II to happen. Um, there's a, a German Christian pastor who was um, pastor of a church in the States at the time, but from a German background, Reinhold uh, Niebuhr. And, um, and he had been a pacifist until the beginning of World War II. Uh, he, he preached pacifism, and, and then, um, although he was German, he... Uh, his opinion changed on it, and, and he then preached through World War II that the, the only way um, to solve this would be for the Allies to use force against his home nation. And a lot of people's opinions on all this kind of stuff changed in World War II. There's a, a quote from George Orwell when he was asked about pacifism in the middle of the Second World War, and he said, pacifism is objectively pro-fascist. He said to be a pacifist in the midst of the Second World War was to be pro-fascist. You were, you know, you were creating the situation in which Hitler would win. Um, so, yeah, I do think that there is something in, in the question. I, I really do. But I do think that that can't be our, that can't be our default position. You know, we, we have to work to fight to create the conditions in which these things don't happen. We can't, be, we can't say, oh, well, it's okay. You know, we'll just let these things go. We'll let them go, and then eventually we end up with the situation. What we've got to do is be better at going upstream and fighting the, the beginning bit, really. So, so I think that if we were, as a, as a country, uh, if we were better at creating the situation where we weren't just fighting for national borders, as I said earlier, where we weren't just um, looking out for our own, where we were looking globally, where we were welcoming of refugees, if we fought for that, then there's less chance of the alternative happening. I think that's much more than my 10 minutes Actually, yeah, I'm getting nodded at, which says, shut up and go away. Um, I am just going to read that quote to you again as we end. Um, uh, this one from Jonathan Martin. Jesus told Peter to put away his sword, then he willingly laid down his life for the very people that were killing him, crying out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The cross is the once and for all definitive statement that God is nonviolent. We need to work at nonviolence, and we need to work at peacemaking.